BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury. This, of course, is Matt Splained. Ring the bells. It's our first weird science of 2023. What pages have you marked in your almanac of insane ideas today, Matt? Hey, Richard. Um, I think probably most of them are just inane. Um, they they kind of achieve inanity and uh, uh inspire to insanity um maybe that sounds like something you'd read in an almanac i don't know i can't even remember what an almanac is um so like a lot of us i think uh well i took a bit of a break from the news feeds uh, over the the kind of christmas break mm-hmm. um and it's often the the case at this time of year you know the stories go um a little bit quiet so you don't really see uh a lot of weird stuff in that kind of, you know, that holiday season part of the year. Mm. But genuinely, once I went back to the feeds, I mean, there was just this endless stream of freaky stuff. So Mm. um, just to celebrate that, we'll start with something that's not really freaky at all. Um, This is a a site that was uh, recommended by uh, a friend. Uh, He told me about it last week, but obviously we were off the air last week. So this is already all over the place. Um, Mm. This is a tool called GPT-0. So we've talked a lot about chat GPT, which is, you know, the solution to everyone's problem for everything, or they seem to think (laughs) it is from uh, recipes to contracts to, to coding. Now I keep mentioning on the show, these are assistive tools. They're not solutions. Mm -hmm. If you want Mm -hmm. information, go to Google. If you want it to write something for you, research the facts, give it the information. Don't rely yeah. on tools like ChatGPT to contextualize for you, let alone search for correct or supporting information. Now, we reported, I think, on the last show or the show before that OpenAI is looking at building patterns into the text it generates to make it easier for other algorithms to detect it as being machine generated. Right. Now, while it works on that, we have GPT-0. So this launched, I think, the first week of January. It's been used about 7 million times already. Uh, I think it's in public beta mode. Now, it's aimed primarily at educators who want to check whether their students are actually writing their essays or if they're cheating by using machine learning tools. And it does actually seem to work. So I generated some text with ChatGPT. I then plugged it into GPT-0, and it correctly identified it as being machine-created. Then I put in something that I'd written myself, and it identified that as being created by a human. So do we identify this as a win or a loss, then? Well, I'm really not sure. I mean, it certainly knocks my credentials as the first uh, human artificial intelligence, or or maybe it doesn't. Maybe I am finally the man machine. You know, this is a vindication of my programming. Um, But my concern, I think, would be how this tool is used in much the same way that I'm concerned about the ways that chat GPT is being used. Mm. Because GPT-0 isn't the solution to the problem of people using chat GPT as a solution. Now, I know that that sounds like the kind of gibberish that chat GPT might produce, so bear with me. Um, yes, 
GPT-0 can tell you if the text has been machine generated. But I don't know about the degree to which it will tell you whether the user has used the AI to provide the facts or the structure for that text, or whether it's just used it to, to help write. So this kind of goes back to conversations from decades ago about the role of tools like Microsoft Word, because people were saying it would make secretaries and personal assistants irrelevant. Now, it was a, a friend who reminded me of that in a conversation last weekend. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the bigger issues with technology like this. In a few years, tools like ChatGPT are going to be as commonplace as word processing software. So yeah. what we really need now are the guidelines for actually using these tools. So for example, in the case of a school or college essay, how much help is actually permissible? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we look at word processing tools. They have inbuilt grammar and spelling tools. Uh, you can get extensions like Grammarly, uh, which help us to write more correctly. They tell us when we're making mistakes. Uh, Grammarly especially offers targeted help with phrasing. Um, so, Obviously, using an AI to source your facts and your arguments is wrong. We know that. But mm -hmm. we also forget that structuring an argument and the way you present your information is almost as important as doing the research and finding the facts. Because an essay, it's not just a list. It's an answer to a question or a problem. So how much should we allow uh, these machines to help structure our answers to those questions? Mm. And I guess, you know, a lot of educators and editors are having these discussions right now uh, because, you know, the, the, these tools are useful. Letting these tools help our ideas breathe um, is a good thing, especially for people whose writing skills are not great or average. You could have fantastic ideas, but if your presentation is very kind of mundane or boring, that's going to take the shine off you know, mm -hmm. the information you're presenting. Mm. But at the same time, we have to find ways to stop people from using tools like these as a shortcut to, you know, creating the argument itself. See, whilst you were um, talking to me just then, I wanted to say waffling away, but I want you. that I know phrase. you were going to say talking at me. I, I saw you yourself well, correct. Something like that. Um, I took a piece of text that had been generated on chat GPT and had in fact also been tweaked ever so slightly by my own very delicate human hands, uh, pasted in, and it's told me um, it was most likely created by uh, AI, and it's very accurate. Yeah, it is. Either, either that or your editing skills suck. So, yeah, well, I mean, too. it's, yeah, it's one of the two. <laughs> anyway, are we seeing anyone um, other than me uh, using it in a more commercial <laughs> or industrial capacity? Well, interestingly, it's come out that the tech website CNET has been using it. Oh. Yeah, very quietly. It's created about 75 pieces using ChatGPT, mostly on its CNET money desk. Uh, in a statement on the site, the uh, editor, Connie uh, Guglielmo, if I've pronounced that correctly, said they were trying the tool for a number of reasons, partly because they see it as you know part of their role as a tech news provider to test the tool to see, you know, to, to kind of stretch its limits. Uh, mm -hmm. And 
also to see how tools like this could supplement the work of their writers. So not replace them, but actually to supplement. So for example, you know, if a writer was writing a piece about derivatives or interviewing a derivatives expert, would it be possible to use tools like ChatGPT to provide a tailored explainer to derivatives to accompany that article? You know, ideally you want another human writer to do that, but The reality is, especially with websites, it's a very competitive news marketplace. Mm, And mm. the advantage that a story has is typically measured in minutes. So there often isn't time to to work on those companion pieces. Um, You know, how often, especially when it comes to anything Elon, um, is what we talk about on this show slightly out of date, simply because we record it a day before it's broadcast. Mm, So mm. I can see how this tool isn't just a way of saving on staff on writing costs. It's about exploring its potential to extend or actually complement that reporting. Um, The fact that we're talking about it, though, suggests that it didn't go well. Well, I think, you know, firstly, CNET deciding to do it on the quiet, I kind of understand why, because they want to see if the readers can tell the difference. that's the kind of thing that I would do, which is why no one in their right mind would appoint me as the editor of a big tech news site. <laughs> um, so a number of rival sites uh, discovered, in inverted commas, that CNET was doing this. Um, it wasn't so much that they were hiding it. It was just that they were being less obvious about it if we're being charitable. Right. Um, but those websites also discovered uh, quite a lot of accurate inaccuracies in those machine generated pieces as well. Um, and that's where we come back to this same tools, not solutions argument. So sorry mm-hmm. if I keep boring people with this, but this is why it's so important. Stories generated by machines need much heavier editing and fact checking, um, which is why I joked about Richard's editing skills. It's not really about his editing skills. Mm. It's about the way that you approach these texts, Uh, especially because the machines actively reinforce statements that they make that are incorrect. And that just sounds or makes them sound a lot more plausible. And this Mm -hmm. is what seems to have prompted that statement by CNET's editor, um, because ultimately it calls into question how efficient this method actually is. If this is supposed to be a time-saving tool, well, it actually places a lot more pressure on the editors and fact-checkers, possibly more pressure than having a well-informed writer create it in the first place without mistakes. Um, You know, to quote Daft Punk, we assume that technology is always, you know, harder, better, faster, stronger. Um, That's not always the case. So we have to have these discussions now because these events are demonstrating that this technology, it's not from the future. This technology is here and it's already having uh, a small influence and impact on our world. Mm. Um, I don't really know how to segue the next one. So would you like a story about a smelly robot? I was going to say, well, that's about as good as a segue as we're going to get, I think. Um, So, yeah, absolutely. I'd I'd like a story about a smelly robot. Yes, please. please. Good. So this is a a story from Engadget. Um, We've done a few stories on electronic noses over the years. So just a a bit of background. You know, we have all of this incredible technology, um, satellites and drone that can watch the world with super powerful lenses, 
all of these telescopes that let us see the stars. Um, we've got microphones and sensors that can pick up the tiniest sounds and vibrations. Uh, all kinds of machines can now be programmed to deliver the correct level of touch to an object it's handling. Um, I, I say programmed uh, for a I say that very deliberately because we're only just getting to the point where cameras and other feedback devices create, uh, attached to robots can create these machine arms or hands that can vary the pressure according to the object. But we found it a lot harder to replicate senses like taste and smell mm. Mm. until now. Uh, a team at Tel Aviv University has come up with a biological robot that uses AI to detect sense. Yeah, so so this is, uh, folks, for those of you listening at home, um, this is where Matt kind of starts using neutral-sounding words to describe something horrific. Um, a biological robot is a cyborg, isn't it? Well, I guess you could call it that. I mean, in this case, it's really just a, a roller skate with um, some locust antennae. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I kind of get that. You you trying to be cute um but calling something a roller skate with insect parts isn't that reassuring uh no but you know potato potato grasshopper locust in this case yeah mostly locust um <laughs> the research team used antennae from a locust um uh -huh. presumably because they're very good at detecting uh, odors and scents at a distance um rather than because like i said they're going for a particular aesthetic um so they Coupled this to Richard's shaking his head right now. Uh, they coupled this to a machine learning system. Um, the system can then learn to uh, imprint uh, the the kind of um, I guess the kind of tattoo or the transfer of uh, of a smell, and then detect it again in the future. Uh, the first trials have been quite limited. Um, I think the article mentioned that eight odors uh, have been programmed, uh, including uh, lemon, geranium, and marzipan. Don't ask me why. Three um, of my favorite things right there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, give me a lemon, geranium, and marzipan cake, and <laughs> I'm gone for the evening. Anyway, the, the idea is that as it expands, the device can be used to detect things like explosives and bombs, or drugs, or even things like spoilt food. So there's quite a variety of uh, public and private uses for this technology. Oh, okay, then. Um Okay, so what are we going to go? Thank you for the smelly robot. What are we going to go, uh, have to take us into the break? Well, it's the shock revelation by scientists that five year old children are smarter than chimpanzees. Ah, that yeah. Reminds. Anyway, yeah, go on. Yeah, go on. It, it, it might surprise the owners of some five year olds, but that's probably because they haven't also owned a, a chimp for a direct comparison. I don't um, think you can call parents owners of children, Matt. Potato, potato. Um, <laughs> interestingly, uh, the same study showed that uh, chimps are nearly as smart as a four-year-old and definitely smarter than humans below that age. Um, again, I think Richard is shaking his head in disgust yeah. right now. Yeah. Um, either it's because uh, 
this isn't where he thought his career was going to take him or because he's the one who faces most of the backlash from parents from my shows because I don't really associate with any. Um, But yes, uh, scientists at the University of uh, St. Andrews in the UK have found that five-year-olds are better at switching their attention for different tasks than chimpanzees are. How much research did we really need to put into this, though? I mean, and why is it important? Because you have to choose. Do you want a chimp? Do you want a five-year-old? I, I don't really know how better to explain this. Now, I, I initially had this vision that the lab contained a mixture of kids aged five and belows and a mixture of young adolescent and adult chimps. Um, and then I realized that, you know, that's actually what a, a something of a health and safety risk because that would really put the chimps in danger. You're not helping yourself here, Matt. Moving no, on. Moving along. I know. So um, essentially, um, they were all done separately. Um, they were given similar tasks with different rules. This is from New Scientist, by the way. So there were two sets of shelves: one green shelf, one blue shelf. Uh, each shelf had four cups on it. On the green shelves, there were treats hidden inside a green cup. On the Mm -hmm. blue shelves, the treats were hidden inside a pink cup. The test was to see how they could switch between the two and remember the rules associated with them. So the chimps did pretty well. They had an accuracy rate of around 52%. Fairly similar Uh to four-year-olds who had an accuracy rate of around 59%. And outperforming three-year-olds who only managed to find the treats about 50% of the time. Uh, I think I've, yeah. And for the uh, five-year-olds and above, the accuracy rate was 80%. That's the important bit. Um, So there you are. Um, That's my public service information for this week, helping to give you the advice you need to choose between young humans and primates. Yeah. uh, um, uh, uh, And on that, with that nonsense, (laughs) What are we doing this? <laughs> I think we should go to a break. Of course, you tune into Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9. FM 89.9, the business station. Welcome back to Matt Splained. Um, AI, locust, children, chimps. Um, who are we going to annoy in this part of the show, Matt? Hey, look, I just follow the science. You can't blame me for where it takes us. Wait, you pick and choose the science that you choose no. to follow. No, no, no. The science chooses me. Okay, fine. Just, just, just be thankful I didn't talk about the Australian spiny anteater that blows snot bubbles to keep itself. <laughs> <laughs> Although that story would probably work with the five-year-olds I've just alienated. Yes. Um, I'll let people Google that one for themselves. That's a story that's around this week. Um, the uh, the anteaters themselves, very, very cute until you get to the snot bubbles. Anyway, it's uh, it's the new year, so let's have some. Uh, anti-aging stuff um Mm. i'm getting to the point in my life where i have to start considering senescence uh senescence is the point at which uh some of my 
cells don't split and rejuvenate anymore. Uh, they just sit there getting lazier and lazier, content to sit on the sofa eating pizza, instead of heading out with their roller skates and antennae to keep themselves in shape. Yeah. Um, the big problem with senescence is that laziness spreads. Uh, it can actually have a cascading effect, so essentially behaviorally infecting neighboring cells. Uh, and one of the byproducts of senescence is that toxins also accumulate in those cells, creating swelling effects that cause conditions like osteoarthritis. Matt, it's the new year, and you're like a little ball of New Year joy today, aren't you? Well, I'm, I'm not doom-mongering. Um, again, this is a, a new scientist story. So a, a lot of treatments for age-related diseases, they've taken the approach of eliminating, targeting and eliminating the senescent cells, which right. makes a lot of sense. But the more direct approach is actually to prevent cells from reaching that dormant state. So prevention is better than cure. And that's what a team at the University of Texas medical branch is actually looking into. Uh, and they're using a technology that may already be familiar to people who have cosmetic treatments, low-frequency ultrasound. Uh, the Texas team has managed to rejuvenate old mice as well as restart cell divisions in Human cells, I'm going to say this next sentence very quickly. The human cells they used, foreskin cells, in case anyone is interested, uh, presumably because there's a constant supply in the US, um, these cells usually reach senescence after around 15 divisions. Now, when subjected to ultrasound at around 100 hertz, they've actually reached 24 subdivisions and there are no apparent abnormalities. Uh, using marker dyes for tests in mice, they found that the ultrasound treatment reduced senescent cells in the kidneys and the pancreas. And with treated mice, it seemed to reverse the effects of conditions like arthritis. This seems to remind me of a book, uh, Flowers for Algernon. Um, but anyway, do we know why this works? Not really. Um, this is Great. one of those. Yeah, this is this is one of those solutions they've found that they don't really understand. Um, they think they know how it works, but not exactly. They think it might have something to do with ultrasound waves actually mimicking the effects of exercise. So oh. they're actually stimulating the cells in the same way that it would if you went out and, and exercised. Uh -huh. um, but they've also realised that this is too big a puzzle for them to solve on their own. So what the team is currently considering is selling their machines to other research teams. And that way they can start to create a picture that's built up by a much larger group of uh, scientific minds and approaches. Mm. Because one of the things they found that um, with ultrasound research in the past, different researchers have used different machines and frequencies, which makes it pretty much impossible to compare one study to another. Um, just, just a broad question. Could this be the elixir of youth? Uh, yes, thank you. If you'd like to send me your money, um, <laughs> I will send you some ultrasound. No, um, <laughs> I think there's a, a, a lot of uh, work to be done before we see any therapies on the market. And I'd be a bit wary of anyone claiming that a quick zap of ultrasound is going to solve all ills. Um, because firstly, there's a, an issue of delivery because bones and organs absorb a lot of the ultrasound waves, especially at this mm. frequency. So figuring out what to target, 
how much power to use and how it actually reaches that target are a ways off. And of course, every time a cell divides, there is that risk that one of them will mutate and become cancerous. Mm. Mm. So, so far, nothing in the research has suggested that it increases the risk of cancer. Um, an initial trial with people suffering from osteoarthritis is being planned. Uh, and one of the more surprising effects is that it seems to reverse symptoms of dementia in mice. So the team is also interested in seeing whether it could be used for conditions like Alzheimer's in humans. It seems like I should be part of that trial. Well, I, I don't want to say anything out loud, but yeah, maybe. Um, anyway, uh, so moving on then, I believe we're sticking with waves, uh, but we're moving on to Wi-Fi. Uh, yes, but no, but we'll come back to the waves in a minute. Um, okay. I want to move on to something that's actually been a huge favourite on Matt's Blaine over the years, and that's Superwood. Now... I don't know why, um, because this isn't a specifically environmentally focused show, but advances in material science is something that we frequently cover. Mm. Uh, but there's something about Superwood that seems to grab people's imagination. So this latest development is uh, a treated wood called insule wood. Uh, as you might have guessed, it's a wood that can be used as an effective insulator. Now, I know in Malaysia, we don't typically need much insulation, but it can also be used for sound isolation as well. Mm, so mm. any of you that live in concrete and steel boxes that transmit the sounds of your neighbors throughout the entire frame of your building, uh, you might appreciate this development. Um, also because it's highly sustainable. A lot mm -hmm. of um, insulating and sound isolating materials are made from foam, which as we know is made from oil. Um, and of course, in the construction process, it's an additive, uh, which I'll come back to in a minute. Um, if we're going to touch on sustainability, though, why is Inselwood um, a good option? Well, yeah, not all wood is sustainable. So this is something that can be created from a lot of fast-growing woods. Uh, the research team at the University of Maryland used a, a wood called Paulonia, which is commercially grown around the world. Uh, apparently, basswood, balsa, and pine are also suitable. Now, typically, wood is a poor insulator. What the Maryland team did was dip the wood in a solution of sodium hydroxide. I know that sounds horrible, but it's actually common in the paper industry because it helps to remove lignin and hemicellulose, so it helps to dissolve those fibers. The treated wood is then dried for seven hours, and the resulting material is much less dense. It's almost a third of the original density. Mm. The removed fibers become tiny little air pockets, and that's where the insulating properties come from. And it equates to, you know, roughly the same of the kind of EPA insulating foam, on top of which it should still be biodegradable at the end of its useful life. But the biggest benefit of the wood is that it remains almost as strong after the process as it starts off being. So mm. that's where I come back to these additive uh, materials. Currently, you inject insulating foam between two brick or concrete layers. With insule wood, you have a structural material that is also your insulator. It's right. not an additive anymore. It's actually part of the physical strength and structure 
of the building that you're creating. So, you know, I know material science can seem dry and boring, but advances like this that help us build better homes and buildings in a more sustainable manner, I mean, that's only a benefit. So um, how are you planning to wave goodbye today? Uh, I see. So uh, that's a, a dad joke about Wi-Fi yeah, I, waves, yeah. And to be I, fair, I, so. I, I did I did make Richard say that um, because his jokes are even worse. Um, this is true. To, <laughs> to I have them written by chat GPT. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's not a bad idea. I should yeah, try yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so th- this, this final one, it's uh, as we mentioned before, we're going back to waves, Wi-Fi waves. So this is kind of an update on a story we covered on Matt Splained in the year's BR. Uh, that stands for Before Richard, uh, mm-hmm. back when there was an idealistic young whippersnapper called Jeff who would chat to me every week. Uh, and it was a story about what was uh, essentially a denoising system that researchers at MIT came up with uh, that identified people moving around their homes from their Wi-Fi signals. Uh, Now, I know that might sound like junk science, um, and I recounted it once, um, and I was pretty much accused of presenting junk science. But you have to think about radio waves as this kind of invisible fuzz that surrounds you all the time. So when you move around a room or around your house, you're constantly interrupting that field of fuzz. The MIT team found a way to filter all that noise you know, there, there are so many overlapping radio signals and other fluctuations that, that cut into those fields. So they found a way to filter it that would just show how a human cut through those waves. And they were able to use a machine learning algorithm to turn the movements of people within those Wi-Fi coverage fields into stick images on a screen. So it would show you sitting or walking or bending. I mean, it was a bit like the opening to the Pink Panther movies where you've got the, yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, your your imagination can can do the rest. So one potential use, of course, is home security. So rather than having cameras set up in every room, your Wi-Fi coverage, which typically is pretty much your entire house, could tell you how many people are in a room or a house or a building, you know, whereabouts they are. Um, So positive benefits, but also lots of potential for abuse because it would be relatively simple to sit outside a house with a radio receiver and see how many people were inside and what they were doing or to snoop on family members. It was also hypothesized at the time that it could be used for low-cost government surveillance, because we can't live without Wi-Fi. And these are systems that can be managed remotely by AI. So you could control who could and couldn't leave a property. You could put someone under house arrest Mm. without having to monitor them, for example, because Mm. constantly they're being tracked on the screen. And given the trends we've seen in certain countries since the start of the pandemic, you know, we've seen these active attempts to extend surveillance of populations. I mean, I don't want to say too much, Matt, um, because you're very good at that. And that seemed to be a very long <laughs> preamble. I'm nothing if not long-winded. So this story is from Motherboard, but I didn't think it was really worth updating the story unless we actually explained Got how it. the previous one worked. So Okay. The technology from MIT has been improved upon by researchers at 
Carnegie Mellon University. They took a system called DensePose, which was part developed by Facebook. That technology maps the pixels on human bodies. Um, it started off from, from photos, so you could turn them into you know, 3D images. Mm. The team then developed a neural net that they applied to DensePose that would enable them to do the same thing with Wi-Fi. So denoise the signal and turn the points of a person into pixels on a screen. So the result is a 3D map of the humans in a given space, offering far more detail than the previous MIT breakthrough. If you want to try and visualize it, you know, you've seen those kind of, um, when people are doing CGI with actors, they mm. they create these, these 3D green line drawings of the person yeah. with points. That's what this does. It turns people via Wi-Fi into those 3D green line projection images. So people might be distinguishable from their physical size, the way they walk, or other physical characteristics. Now, of course, this is again being presented as a way to enhance home security. And it is, you know, you could see intruders, but you could also see what your kids are up to inside bedrooms or other spaces without the intrusion of having cameras. So you do wonder what kind of world tech like this is actually opening us up to be and what controls or restrictions or even workarounds to prevent third party spying on your networks are going to be needed in the future. So there you have it. That's us for this week. Chimps, the elixir of life, superwood, and a CGI spying system. That's pretty much weird science at its best. Oh, thanks for that, Matt. Um, just on that last point about where, where the tech is opening us up to be, uh, it, my initial thought wasn't immediately through um, surveillance, but it was imagining your locust on a roller skate or whatever it is, crawling into spaces that we couldn't get using its antenna as Wi-Fi, looking for search and rescue, stuff like that. Uh, I mean, you could do that with a remote control. You wouldn't need this kind of technology to do it. But I get, I get what you mean. You could actually, mm -hmm. you could actually uh, create these um, uh, kind of vision fields using mm. the, the radio wave. So it would be um, like a much less intrusive kind of mm. radar system. You just drop a Wi-Fi box down and suddenly you can see all manner of things. But yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, there's lots of um, potential benefits to this technology, but it's so simple and so mm. straightforward that mm. you wonder what kind of safeguards we will actually need to to counteract it. Lovely. Thank you very much for this week's show then, Matt. Um, entertaining as ever. Now, um, if you did miss any part of this show, don't forget you can download the podcast wherever you normally get it from. We recommend the BFM app that's available at the Apple App Store or Google Play, or you can check out Matt's little thingy. What is it, Matt? It's my uh, culturepop.substack.com or substack.culturepop.com, one of the two. Um, I just want to wish everyone a, a happy Lunar New Year. There you go. Thank you very much for that. Uh, this has been Matt Splain here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. <laughs>